These boys have a conscience. They have to go through. These boys have to meet God someday. And someday I'll meet my son in heaven. No vengeance. Strictly let God do it. Let God take his own vengeance. In just three short years, Dean Coral managed to rape, torture, and kill at least 27 young men from a single Houston suburb. How could this happen? Well, with a little luck and a lot of help as it turns out. But to truly understand the major factors at play, we should probably back up. In the 50s and 60s, the city of Houston was severely underpoliced, leading to it being a top 10 city in the U.S. for homicide. It had less than half of the police that a city of Houston size would have been required to. Crime on the streets has become a fact of life. Sooner or later, you or someone you know will be a victim. It's just a question of time. A question of where, when, and why. Unfortunately, the police are usually called after the crime. After the damage is done. What can be done before that point in time? What can you, the potential victim, do? Yes, the Houston Police Department was a big pile of flaming garbage, but they're not responsible here. Thousands of people grew up in Houston at that time and didn't end up strapping a bunch of boys to torture boards. Which brings us to little Dean Coral. Dean's childhood was a strange mix of red flags and bad parenting. As a kid, when Dean wasn't making jewelry from the corpses of squirrels he'd murdered, or sucking on the old trombone, or is it blowing? He was working at his mom's business, the Coral Candy Company. Dean was someone who probably would have benefited from proper sex education, but for the most part, that onus fell on the parents at the time. The sperm can come out what's called an ejaculation. Dean's mother, after divorcing his father for a second time, decided the domestic life just wasn't for her. It was around that time that she started sending her boys to her sister's farm for the summers, so she could have a little alone time. Really find herself, you know? But it also eliminated her need to teach her kids about sex. As she put it, I didn't see there was much I had to tell them. What kind of sex training do you got to give a boy that's lived on a farm? You don't got to tell him nothing. But gee, Doc, I'm only human. It's a biological urge. We didn't say it was criminal. We just said if you did to protect yourself. You were taught to pull in your rear when bullets were flying over you, weren't you? And that's actually a really good point, Doc. Because Dean probably was taught to dodge bullets when he was drafted into the Army in 1964. But this would only last 10 months because he returned home on a hardship exemption to run the candy factory. But two very important things would happen during this time away. Without the fear of disappointing his mother or community, Dean began to experiment with his sexuality. And more tragically, the candy company moved across the street from a grade school in the Houston Heights neighborhood. These two seemingly inconsequential events would start at least 27 boys and young men 
down the last road they would ever travel. When Dean returned home, he was essentially put in charge of the day-to-day operations at the factory. This was also about the time the demographics of the employees began to trend younger and younger, and Dean began to change. He used his influence to groom the young boys around him. He installed a pool table in the back of the factory and encouraged the young employees to invite their friends to socialize after hours. He would hand out misshapen candies to the young children leaving school for the day. He did this so much that the principal actually asked him to stop, but this wouldn't deter the Pied Piper of the Houston Heights. Houston was suffering from the growing pains of a city whose industry and population outpaced its own civil values and infrastructure. The Houston Heights, on the other hand, it had its share of poverty, sure, but crime was pretty low, and the community still clung on to an idealistic Mayberryan worldview, where front doors are left unlocked year-round and during the summers. Most kids are left to their own devices until the street lamps turn on. A sick man with a dangerous mind in an overly trusting and naive community that's law enforcement has been stretched beyond effectiveness. The situation had become laboratory level conditions for a sadistic pedophile to grow uninhibited in his dirty little petri dish. In 1968, after her fifth divorce and seeing profits in her company steadily fall since putting her son at the helm, she decided to shut the factory down. She and her daughter moved to Colorado and asked Dean to join them. Despite now having no job and no relationships outside of the children that he spent his time with, he decided he would stay behind. Make no mistake. Dean used these years as a trusted authority figure and job provider to sow deep seeds of trust within the community. And for just the second time in his life, he would be free from the prying eyes of his mother. His fantasies no longer had to be contained to his mind, and the allowances that he granted himself began to grow exponentially. The Candyman would gain the trust of the misfit youth, hosting parties and giving them a safe place to go. He would supply his young guests with beer, weed, whippets, creating a party palace with no rules. During these parties, Dean would often sink into the background, usually remaining completely sober. But it wouldn't be long before Dean would start to reveal himself, his true self, to his first of two accomplices, David Brooks. Currently, he is 65 years old, serving his 99-year sentence, and he refuses to speak about the subject to this day. What we do know is that he grew up in a broken home with an abusive father, and he looked up to Dean as a father figure, claiming he was the first person in his life who actually showed him love. But Dean would abuse this misplaced affection and began preying on the 14-year-old boy paying him five bucks for oral, sometimes for receiving. 
David would move in with Dean within the year, but would come to a crossroads when he walked in on Dean with two young boys, strapped to a prototype of his infamous torture board, a seven foot long slab of three inch thick plywood with holes for restraining wrists and ankles. After seeing this, he turned and quickly ran out of the house and got to safety. But now he had a choice to make. He could turn in his friend, roommate, father figure, and boyfriend, I guess, potentially saving countless lives in the following years. Or he could just put it away in that dark place in the back of your mind where you put the things you don't want to feel. Dean explained that there was nothing to worry about because he hadn't killed those boys. You see, he was just taking some Polaroids that he would use to sell them into sex slavery later, but that's okay because he gave Brooks a car for a silence. Dean would then double down, offering to bring him into his twisted fold, paying him $200 per boy that he could bring him for this job. This bounty over $1,300 per boy, when accounting for inflation, would give David Brooks financial freedom while also giving him the opportunity to make Daddy Dean happy at the same time. So he too began to grant himself allowances. It was on December 13, 1970, that David Brooks would officially sell his soul and solidify his blood allegiance to the devil of the Houston Heights by helping him kill James Glass and Danny Yates, both 14 years old. Yates had meant nothing to Brooks. But James Glass had been a longtime friend, showing just how little it took to push him into mania. When Coral took Brooks to bury the bodies of their fresh victims, he took them to a rented boat shed, a cavernous space that seemed very familiar to Dean. This dirt-floored aluminum box was big enough for a yacht, was hidden away from the world, and would serve as the unceremonious temporary grave for countless victims. Just six weeks later, brothers Donald and Jerry Waldrop, 15 and 13, agreed to come back to the apartment with Brooks, where he watched Dean strangle the life from the boys one at a time. Brooks' next friend to go was Randall Harvey, Needing a ride to work and seeing his buddy riding shotgun, he mistook a sexual sadist van for viable transportation. Gregory Winkle and David Hillegeist, next door neighbors, were the next to be dumped into the boat shed pit. Winkle was actually a former candy factory employee, and David Hillegeist would visit regularly.
Winkle's family was aware of the frequency that boys were going missing and the lack of interest by the police. They hired private investigators and rallied the community to canvas the streets. Friends, neighbors, co-workers alike. One of Gregory's closest friends, Elmer Wayne Henley Jr., was especially upset by his disappearance and helped until the searches were called off entirely. Only six months later, that same grieving child would be introduced to Dean Coral. Dean Coral and David Brooks would kill one more boy as a duo, Reuben Watson, on August 17th of 1971, before changing things up, making eight boys in as many months for the two. David Brooks was not the most popular kid, and he had less and less friends he could bring Dean every time one went into the boat shed. So when Brooks brought Elmer Wayne Henley to the apartment with the intention of making him their next victim, Dean saw potential in this personable young man. More importantly, he saw that, just like Brooks, Henley was a burnout from a broken home with nothing to lose. So he made him an offer, like the one he made Brooks. At first, Elmer had reservations. Dean and David's relationship and their hobby was clear by the 18-inch double-sided dildo left laying around the apartment. But the potential to make money was still there. It wasn't long after that Elmer's stepfather left town, leaving his mom and siblings without the paycheck they needed to put food on the table. This was the excuse that Elmer was looking for. The newly formed Alliance of Evil would kill at least 18 boys in the following year. missing from the neighborhood, now well into the double digits. No one outside of Dean's sick circle could imagine how they had actually fared. The manner of death was usually pretty typical, resulting from a gunshot wound or strangulation. But it was the hours and sometimes the days of torture leading up to that sweet release of death that was truly disturbing. Once they had a boy strapped to the board, they would carry out the most vile sexual violence imaginable shoving long glass tubes into the urethras of the boys and snapping them off inside. It was only when they were done using the boy that they would usually kill him on the spot, sometimes shooting them, sometimes strangling them together. But if they had taken a particular liking to him, they would just move him from the board to the box where he would remain until Dean and Brooks had juiced back up. With his very first skit, only a month after Dean's initial offer, Henley would prove his worth, luring 17-year-old Willard Branch to Coral's apartment with the promise of booze and dope. The night started out pretty much as expected for Willard, but things got really fun when Coral and Henley pulled out a pair of handcuffs. They took turns putting them on and showing how easily they could escape from them. When it was Willard's turn, he just couldn't get them off. Something was different. You see, the real trick was to just have the key in your back pocket. And by the time he figured that out, he 
he was already being dragged back to Dean's bedroom. This little handcuff plan was cooked up by Henley ahead of time, and, finishing a job well done, he headed on home. He was still under the impression that these boys were being sold into slavery, not killed. The same lie Dean had initially told Brooks, a lie he reinforced the next morning when Henley showed up to collect his $200. The handcuff game would become a permanent fixture in their process. The next boy that Henley dragged into this nightmare, Frank Aguirre, was a longtime friend of his. But after seeing him cuffed on the ground, Henley began to have second thoughts about selling his friend into the sex trade, and he begged Dean to reconsider. Dean turned and looked at him and told him there on the spot that he was killing these boys. Not only that, but he had killed David Hillgeist, Henley's friend that he had searched for and grieved over less than a year ago. Instead of calling the cops, or at least distancing himself from Coral, he leaned in because this made his dick hard in a way that Dean's dildos and huffing gas never could, and he was all in now. 17-year-old Mark Scott, another longtime friend of Henley's, would be sacrificed to Dean on 420. 17-year-old Billy Bouch, former factory employee, and 16-year-old Johnny DeLone would be next on May 21st. Steven Sickman, 17, on July 20th. Wally Simino, 14 and Richard Hembry, 13, would die on October 3rd. Richard Kepner, 19, on November 12th, and Joseph Lyles, 17, on February 1st of the next year. During the spring of 1973, the gang was beginning to drift apart, and it wouldn't be long until the house that Quarrel built would be exposed to the world. Henley was now Dean's golden goose, and David Brooks felt replaced. Suddenly not gay, Brooks got himself a girlfriend, knocked her up, and they were moved out of the heights by June. Henley, maybe feeling a little bit guilty for profiting off the death of his friends, tried to enlist in the Navy to get himself out of the situation, but was denied. Dean Coral could feel his world collapsing in on him, so he contacted his mom for the first time in five years and made plans to move to Colorado in the following months. But over the next 30 days or so, Coral and Henley would kill eight boys from in and around the Heights. This was a pace of one boy every four days. Wayne was also distancing himself because he was falling for Rhonda Williams, the former fiance of Frank Aguirre, the first real friend Henley brought to Dean. This mad frenzy was all leading up to the end on August 8th. 1973. It was on this night that Wayne made the mistake of bringing a girl. This girl was Rhonda Williams. Rhonda was actually planning on skipping town that night, but Henley convinced her to come with him and their friend, Tim Curley, just to hang out at Dean's before leaving. The three showed up at 3 a.m., and Dean lost it. After bitching at Henley in private about bringing a girl to his boy party, he took a breath, calmed down, and kindly offered his guests as much paint as they could huff. I guess you could say it turned out to be a pretty great Henley awoke to his ankles bound and Dean putting cuffs on his wrists. The floor was covered in plastic and Tim was naked and strapped to the board. Rhonda was also tied up, but she had all her clothes on. When Dean saw that Henley had awoken, he turned the radio up full blast and shoved a 22 pistol in his stomach 
He looked him dead in the eye and told him, I'm going to teach you a lesson. Panicking, Henley swore his allegiance to Dean and promised to kill Rhonda right there on the spot. Dean, seeing that maybe he'd gone a little nuts there for a second, put the gun down and freed Henley. He started to remove all of his clothes as he walked over to Tim Curley, still passed out on the torture board. He looked back at Wayne, pointed to Rhonda, and told him, Get to work. Wayne Henley Jr. couldn't do it anymore. He picked up the gun, pointed it at Dean Coral, and said, I can't go on any longer. I can't have you kill all my friends. Now completely naked, Dean rushed Henley shouting, Kill me! Why don't you kill me then? And Henley did just that. Firing five shots at near point blank range. Dean's dead, naked corpse slumped to the ground against the wall. Henley first told the cops the same lie that Dean Quarrel had told him and Brooks, that he believed it was all a part of a sex slavery ring. But then he confessed to helping him bury 19 boys and directed them to the boat shed. Which is interesting, because he probably could have just played like he was a victim. It's not like the Houston Police Department would have done any digging, as we'll soon find out. When the cops entered the shed, the scene was like nothing any of them had ever seen before. Not many local cops had dealt with mass grave scenes like this, and they knew that they were incapable of conducting a proper excavation or evidence collection. But since it was the Houston Police Department, they said fuck it. They took anything sitting on top of the soil and threw it right out, including a bike that belonged to a boy that had gone missing days before. Instead of bringing in forensic professionals, they brought in prisoners to exhume the bodies. And instead of giving them wooden or plastic tools, it was regular old garden shovels. The methods were crude, but it didn't take long before they found the first body. And it was at this point that Henley broke down and called his mom. Yes, this is Mama, baby. Mama? I killed Dean. Ma'am? What are you doing? Yes, sir. Oh God. Where are you? Um, it's alright. It's alright. It's alright. Where are you? Um, I'm out of his warehouse. Where? Out at that warehouse, he keeps. <laughs> Can I come out there? Yes, yes. Is there a hand cart? She can't. No, you can't come. I'm, I'm with the police, Mama. Henley told police he killed 33-year-old Dean Allen Coral during a party at Coral's house. Henley said Coral had threatened him with a pistol and a knife, trying to force him into unnatural sex acts. Henley told police Coral had bragged about killing several young men and putting their nude bodies in shallow graves in the rented stalls. After further police questioning, Henley said as many as 18 or 19 bodies might be buried in the stalls. And then another body was found. And then another and then another. When the police questioned the property owner, what she said about Dean Coral read like a list of serial killer red flags. He had rented the property for the past three years, but she had never once seen him with a boat. He came to the shed two to three times a week, sometimes to drop things off. Sometimes he stayed for hours. Dogs crowded around the shed, and when it rained, the area would smell awful. Coral had been asking her for the past few months, about the prospect of getting a second shed. 
but admittedly she never really saw a problem with any of this. They stopped digging at midnight and started again at noon the next day, immediately finding the next four bodies. They even found two small bags filled with genitals and because of the special care taken in wrapping these, they'd been perfectly preserved. While the bodies they found around them were a mess of decomposition. By the end of the second day, 17 of the 19 bodies that Henley said were there had been found, but a thick layer of mud and decomposed human sludge that had accumulated at the bottom of the pit made the prisoner shovels useless, and they just quit. I feel animosity, I really do. After all, what person wouldn't feel some animosity? But the mother of this boy, Henley, I know that she's going through probably the same things we are, and people shouldn't try to condemn the mother for what the son has done. Although my animosity, I'm deeply grieved, and I have great animosity of what I'd like to do, but yet I go back that the vengeance, no vengeance, strictly let God do it. Let God take his own vengeance. These boys have a conscience. They have to go through. These boys have to meet God someday. And someday I'll meet my son in heaven. Bad news travels fast. And when David Brooks' father heard the awful story, he hauled his son into the police station and made him give a statement knowing how much time he had spent with that monster. And Brooks initially played coy. But when Henley's full version of the events were told, Brooks knew he was fucked. According to David Brooks and Wayne Henley, there were still nine bodies to be accounted for at a second burial site on a beach in High Island. So that's where the police took them next. Four more bodies were found yesterday on a beach about 35 miles east of Galveston. Large plows were brought in to dig up a stretch of beach one and a half miles long where sheriff's deputies had been told by two of the accused murderers in the case that other bodies could be found. The total number killed in the largest recorded sex perversion and murder case in U.S. history, authorities believe they may have recovered all of the bodies. When the 26th body was exhumed, police chief Herman Shore ordered them to stop. Brooks and Henley told the police that there were other burial sites and that there were many more bodies, but that didn't matter to them. Because when the 26th body was pulled from the ground, Dean Coral in Houston by association had broken the record for most people killed by a single person, with the previous record being 25 set just one year earlier. Police Chief Herman Short would resign in shame less than a year later. The true number of dead may never be known, but the official count is absolutely short of the truth, according to both Wayne and Brooks. And this is if we're going to completely ignore the years that Dean was probably perfecting his tools and rituals and burial practices in the years following his mom's departure. Brooks and Henley would get life in prison. Henley became a media whore, taking interviews every chance he got. His story would twist and turn, describing Coral as some kind of Svengali, brainwashing him, forcing his hand. Insult was added to injury when Dean Coral received a veteran's funeral, complete with a full honor guard. Nothing fucking honorable with this guy. But Henley got the COVID in prison in 2020 and died, so at least we can all feel good about that. But to me, death is not, death is not a fearful thing. It's living that's treacherous. 
There's a big element of wanting complete control over someone. Remorse for what? You people have done everything in the world to me. Doesn't that give me equal right? Honey, honey. Ma'am, ma'am, I need to know the address. 431 Southeast 1.